Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong. I can change a diaper with one hand. You got back, Jack. And Joe Getty. Joey, baby. I love that tiny people. I'm strong and Getty. But I know this. They're loco. So it's a hustle. Yeah, it's a ah! And now, here's Armstrong and Getty. Members of the squad support the Palestinians and criticized how the Biden administration is handling the crisis. As long as the message from Washington is that our military support for Israel is unconditional, Netanyahu's extremism, right-wing government will continue to expand settlements. We cannot stand idly and complicitly by and allow the occupation and oppression of the Palestinian people to continue. We're scared to stand up to the incarceration of children in Palestine. It's because maybe it'll force us to, to confront the incarceration of children here on our border. Oh, that's a coherent political argument. Thank the, you for that. Those arguments have been around as long as I've been paying attention to the Middle East conflict, but I don't remember members of Congress ever saying that stuff. I remember seeing people on, you know, Sunday talk shows or reading columns in the various newspapers, opinion pieces. I don't remember people in, in government having that position. Do you? Yeah, I could be. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember well enough to trust my memory. I'm sure there have been some pretty radical lefty types in Congress before, but uh, the fact that there are a group of them and they are avowedly under dogma spouting socialist third world is always right people i don't you know yeah they're they're distinctive um uh, what was i going to say i started reading while i was about to talk and got distracted my brain stopped my brain stopped um i've got a good quote here from somebody saying it is worth reminding everyone every once in a while that hamas is backed by iran so this is a proxy fight between Iran and Israel. Now back to you. I mean, if you look at it that way, how hard is it to pick a side? Yeah, come on. Yeah, Iran is attacking Israel from the Gaza Strip, sacrificing civilians cheerfully to their greater ends. One side, their goal is to just lob missiles in and kill whoever they can hit. The other side tries to at least only uh, you know take out the missile sites and hit combatants, not to kill children on a bus, for instance. In fact, right. there's a video making the rounds today that I'm sure was put out as propaganda by Israel, but it doesn't mean it's not true, of fighter pilots about to drop bombs and saying, no, there are kids there, so let's hold off, of calling it off. Hamas doesn't do that. Right, right. Yeah, boy, and both sides understand they have the eyes and ears of the world right now, so they're spinning like crazy. It's it's strange the extent to which that's part of the modern world. There's actually a great piece, New York Times Magazine or New York Times itself, about how a bunch of like former journalists and former intelligence pros have gotten together and formed these research slash intelligence slash misinformation companies. And they have ties to the government. They have ties to the big uh, news media and the rest of it. And they will dig into people's past. They will go through their garbage. They will use uh, the methods of intelligence. And then they will concoct fake narratives or maybe real narratives. They'll contact their, their contacts in the news media and get push that word out as fast as they can. And the whole Steele dossier thing was a beautiful example of how that works. That was a little ham-handed and dumb, although all the... Uh, you know, lefty media fell for it, but that's now a major industry, misinformation and private intelligence. Lovely. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's here to stay. Um, that article I just read from about how the new Arab street is online. The Arab street is, yeah, is that um, for for the smart set? This is the way you influence people. This is the way you get your voice heard, not 
chanting in a mob on the streets of wherever in the Middle East. Right. And it has all the subtlety and uh, truthfulness of, of the average Twitter account. Are you burned out by the modern definition, which is so stressed out, I guess, from life that you can't quite function correctly? Um, burnout, in general, is said to date to 1973. That's about the time the first time the phrase was ever used. By the 1990s, according to this article by Jill Lepore, uh, by the 1980s, everyone was burned out. In 1990, when a Princeton scholar published a new, a new English translation of the Iliad, it had Achilles saying uh, he was burned out. So, Man, I I'm mean, stressed. It had become so popular that there All these centaurs and, and, and sirens <laughs> and stuff. I mean, this is burned out. It's pointed out that in the Bible, it looks like Moses was burned out when at one point he said, I'm not able to bear this all alone because it's too heavy for me. Or Elijah in uh, Kings who said, uh, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. That's what I'd like to do today. And requested for himself that he might die. He said, this is enough. Was that burnout? Has burnout always existed? That sure sounds like it to me. It does. Which gets to the question, which is one of the more interesting parts of this uh, article. It goes through the history of burnout. Um, three in five workers say they're burned out currently. And uh, three out of four in the United States say they're burned out. Um, if burnout, and, and then there's a lot of talk of burnout being worse during the pandemic, obviously. If burnout is just part of the human condition, if it's just like, you know, that's just something that happens to human beings, then does it need a special name? Um, uh, yeah, I suppose. Well, love has a name and death and, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Sure, it can have a name. I just, I always need to know what's the definition. And and if somebody, like, works 10 hours a week and doesn't like people telling them what to do and feels so burned out, do I care? <laughs> I mean, if you have a very low capacity for burnout, uh, should I care? Right. Uh, defining symptoms of burnout include exhaustion, cynicism, and a loss of efficacy. Check, check, check. <laughs> but always for me, right? Uh, well, my efficacy is okay. Yeah, my efficacy is okay. But cynicism, pretty steady. Exhaustion, pretty much constant. Omnipresent. So, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a number of studies also suggest that burnout can't be distinguished from depression. Which doesn't make it less horrible, but does make it as a as a clinical term imprecise, redundant, and unnecessary. I mean, if 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 it's depression, then we should only refer to it when we think it's depression. Yeah, I'm not an expert in in that sort of thing, but I think if you could specifically tie it to say your work life balance or you're too busy all the time, that's a special kind of depression. Yeah, I could see it as a subset that requires yeah. maybe a, um, a specific verbiage. As yeah. all burnout has pre- uh, depression, but not all depression is burnout. There you go. That's a good one. You should have been a part of this article, <laughs> oh, which says if burnout is universal and eternal, it's meaningless. If everyone is burned out and always has been, burnout is just the hell of life. Yes. <laughs> but if burnout is a problem of fairly recent vintage, if it began when it was named in the early 70s, then it raises some sort of question, you know, what is going on with modern society that maybe we ought to take a look at? Mm, this is all starting to get a little precious to me. I mean, for instance, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Now, granted, he was managing a bloody war that was splitting the country apart, 
but he freely confessed to burnout on regular occasions. He, he was just completely exhausted. He didn't know if he could take any more of this, which sounds like burnout. Of course, it's the constant of the human condition. It changes its flavors and shapes a little bit through the centuries. I mean, nobody was burned out from social media in 1776. Are you sure? sure they, I'm sure they had burnout. Every day I get up, I make horseshoes all day long. What do I have to look forward to tomorrow? Making more horseshoes. You know, <laughs> hit the mead and get all grogged up. And I, you know. Well, it also says in this article, and I think it's true, the louder the talk about burnout, it appears the greater the number of people who say they're burned out. So, again, it kind of gets to the, if it's the human condition. If it's just the human condition and, you know, your dad says, yeah, everybody's tired, go back to work. Um, as opposed to you hear all these stories about burnout and you think, I've got that. Is there a special, do I get a check or a day off or what do I get for that? Um, right. Makes a difference. Plus, we now worship victim culture in a way that we never have really as a people before. The whiner was seen as weak, annoying, and, and to be uh, cast aside in most of human history. <clears throat> Whereas now the whiner is the, the king and or queen of a college campus, for instance. Hmm. Oh, that's right. You can't say king or queen anymore. Like homecoming king or queen, they're eliminating that. They're eliminating they freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. They're too male-centric, Jack. They're too patriarchal. I... Please do not use gendered language to <laughs> to address everyone. Uh, I understand the king. And, <laughs> I, understand, <laughs> I understand the king and queen being gendered. Yes. No, I don't think it's causing any harm. But what's the gender of freshman? Oh, well, because it's got men in it. Freshman, I think. Um, sophomore man. <laughs> well, actually, sophomore, I was informed by my favorite professor in college, is a combination of sophos, meaning wise, and moros, meaning fool. Sophomores are wise fools. Well, why is that gendered? Uh, it isn't. And then junior and senior is like, uh, you know, Jack Jr., Jack Sr. That's that's male dominated. That's patriarchy right there. That's where that... <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> So are we gonna? I, so you got to keep sophomore, junior, and senior. That's stupid. Uh, if you're gonna do it, because you don't, we don't say mailmen anymore. So if you want to say fresh people or fresh persons, how about of fresh meat? <laughs> <laughs> the fresh meat are here. Yar. Oh boy. Yeah, I know. I know. Since when did we start caring about the feelings of freshmen? Right? <laughs> Come on, get in the garbage can. <laughs> well said, Sean. Well said. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. I came across this yesterday on YouTube by accident. This talk, talk about a non sequitur. It was a non sequitur for my life. My, one of my YouTube suggested videos for some reason was an interview with an old Irish farmer. <laughs> anyway, I clicked on it, and I was astounded by how I, how I couldn't understand a word this guy was saying. So this is an interview from 1965. So you're going back dang near 60 years to start with, and then the guy they're interviewing is 106 years old. So he was born before our Civil War. Wow. Wow. Blows your mind. Yeah. He would have been old enough to know who Abraham Lincoln was when Abraham Lincoln was alive, if he was paying attention to American politics, but he probably wasn't as a rural Irish farmer. Who was on the verge of starving to death at various points of uh, his his lifetime? I'm sure. The only reason I bring there were some tough times for Ireland in the 1800s. The only reason I bring this up is: is this what Irish accents sounded like back in the day? I wouldn't have been able to understand anybody. Is this what uh, 
um, at the time of Ulysses being written, uh, this sounded like. Anyway, here, here it goes. You have seen a lot of changes, Mr. Fitzpatrick, in farming. What would you say was the biggest change? Well, machinery. And what sort of a machine uh, would well, you think that made the biggest impression? Well, <coughs> well the reaper and binder the great one, but by God, the one for cutting up the ground and throwing the crop is a powerful one to them. Well, Not you were, you were... a single word. <laughs> I kind of got machinery. Oh, after I got the machinery. Other guy followed up and said machinery. I was like, okay, you, I, I could see where that came from. You know what was funny was uh, I heard oh, I got to got to be the machinery, and I thought, wow, Jack's premise is all wrong. I can understand the guy completely. And then he launched into that next screen, oh, me... and I swear to you, I did not get a single word. Right, I'm turning up my headphones. Let's try this again. You have seen a lot of changes, Mr. Fitzpatrick, in farming. What would you say was the biggest change? Well, machinery. And what sort of a machine uh, would well, you think that made the biggest impression? Well, <coughs> well, the reaper and binder the great one, but by God, the one for cutting up the ground and throwing <laughs> the crop is a powerful one to him. He said reaper. There was reaper in there. Okay, if you I say so. A reaper and binder. So maybe that's the okay. reaper you heard? The reaper and binder. Okay, I think we have another clip, a different clip, so let's let's try that. Well, you were you were saying you at at the time you saw the mowing machine first, it it made a tremendous impression on you. It did, because it didn't run. Didn't, how could it be done at all? I believe that was a statement of agreement. <laughs> and then we'll try one more. What was the the reaction of the people at that time to the mowing machine? Which was a great many of them wasn't minding it and could afford it, but the more got happy. What? So a great many of them, I think, at the beginning. And then can I hear that one again? I think he said a great many of them. And I thought, oh, I'm tracking with them this time. But then he lost. starting to pick it up. <laughs> then he just went into the agriculture. What was the the reaction of the people at that time to the mower machine, Mister? A Scott? great many of them wasn't minding it and could afford it, but more of them. The rhythm of it. It's like it's. I don't know. It's like a, a, a game, a song. Children were saying, and that's what made me think. If you, if we heard the founding fathers discussing, you know, having the 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 the, the, the constitutional convention, we might not be able to understand a freaking word they said. It's possible. possible. Yeah, depending on the rural uh, dialect. Nobody I mean, they knows. seem to understand each other pretty well. Yeah, but nobody knows what their accent was. Uh, it might be indecipherable to us. Yeah, well, I've told the story before uh, of traveling. Be disappointing. You get in a time machine. You think, <clears throat> you know what I'm going to do? Constitutional convention. I want to hear him arguing about the amendments. I want to hear all this. I'm going to sit there and you and you, you hear this old guy. What was the, the reaction of the. Oh, what was the. Uh, uh, what did you mean by the, the Second Amendment? Well, regulated militia. And that was Thomas Jefferson. You think, damn it! I don't understand any of that. Dr. Franklin, what have you brought us? It's like a Muppet character, that guy. <laughs> wow. Wow. Again, that's a non sequitur. It has no point other than I thought it was funny. Yeah. Man, he is crazy old, though. So he would have been just like a 40-year-old at the turn of the century. So there you go. Wow. Turn of the last century. Unbelievable! I was—I uh, flipped over to uh, a bit of Ireland in the 1800s. A lot of starving, a lot of economic woes. That's why there are so many Irish people who came over to the United States in the uh-huh. 1800s, including—I uh, think actually—I think my forebears on my 
dad's side of the family showed up. Your in the dad very... owned four bears? <laughs> wow. <laughs> when three bears isn't enough. Uh, well, you buy three, you get the fourth one. Everybody knows that. But they showed up in just after 1900. Starving Irishman. You think oh, that... yeah, he had four bears to feed. <laughs> right? There's no food for the kids. You think that farmer was pranking the the guy that was doing the interview? Well, the guy doing the interview seemed to understand him perfectly well. I don't anticipate 1,800 Irish farmers being much of the pranking type. No, I don't think so either. I had one of the weird experiences of my youth on a church mission to very rural Virginia. This would have been in the uh, 80s, I guess. 1880s? No. Uh, 1979 to 80, I think. Uh, but uh, we uh, we stopped by the side of the road to help some folks who were pulled over in their cars, and uh, they asked us if we had any blanks, and we had no idea what they were talking about. This is in the United States of America. We are trying to hold a conversation with these people, and it had to be a curious thing for both them and us. They would say, for instance, you have no wire plowers. You have no wire plowers. And we'd all look at each other, they'd look at us, we'd look at them. Then we would huddle on our side and have a conversation about what they might have said. We would reply to them, and the two of them would have to get together and say, oh, I think he's uh, he's indicating that no, he does not have any. Uh, because we had such a hard time understanding each other. It was really, it was quite striking. We have that entire interview with the old uh, Irish gentleman at armstrongandgetty.com. There's always good, fun stuff at armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Here's Armstrong and Getty. We're looking forward to talking to Lon Chen, David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at Stanford University, frequent commentator on CNN, and rumored to be... Running for high office. Mr. Chen, how are you, sir? Hey, Joe. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, Great. It's always a a pleasure to talk. So, listen, we've kind of been bugging you uh, to run for office because we think your ideas are sound and productive. Uh, Are you actually, can we talk about this? Are you thinking of running for office in Cal Unicornia? I am. I am considering it seriously because, you know, we've talked about a lot of these problems, Joe. I mean, I think what it comes down to, is we've got some basic, very basic sort of blocking and tackling issues that we need to handle in California. We just don't seem to be doing the basic things right. And I think bringing a sort of common sense, ideas-based approach is kind of what we need. And and that's why I'm looking at an office like Controller, which you know a lot of people don't really think very much about or maybe know very much about, but has a tremendous opportunity to change things for the better. And that's why I'm looking at it. Well, let's, uh, first of all, uh, talk about what the controller does. What do they do? Yeah. Well, the the controller is actually, think of it as a chief financial officer for the state of California, the person who is in charge of overseeing the finances, how we're spending the state's money, uh, accounting for all of that, making sure that when politicians make promises, they're held accountable for it. And unfortunately, if you look back over the last, I don't know, 20 years, the controller really hasn't done any of that, you know, really hasn't. Uh, held anybody responsible for anything. You know, we've got all of these different crises in our state, all these different things that are going on. And the controller probably could have made things better along the way many times and simply didn't. So, you know, I, I just take one basic example where there was a report that last year the controller was responsible for signing off on over $300 billion of spending, billion with a B. 
but could not produce a line item list of where all that money went. Now That's right, and I understand the other 49 states were able to. It's a very basic thing, right, Joe? I mean, you think about your family, you think about any business, and it's like if, if, if you went out and said, you know, I, I, we spent a bunch of money, I actually don't know where we spent it. First of all, if you were a business owner, you'd be in jail. If, if you were a you know, family trying to budget that way, you'd be bankrupt. And yet we continue to allow the state to do these sorts of things, and nobody wants to do anything about it. So I think it's time for voters to say, you know what, enough is enough, and let, let's switch things up and have accountability for a change. Well, I would absolutely love to see that. I mean, the, the examples of scandal and wastefulness are legion from the defrauding of the uh, Department of Unemployment. That's not the oh. proper name, but that's what it is. 30, perhaps $40 billion to the utter obscenity that is the regular train. I won't call it a bullet train because it's not going to be a bullet train. It's the suburbs of Fresno to suburbs of Bakersfield $60 billion train nobody wants. My concern is, and you can address those if you want, but my concern is California voters are so brutally unaware of the way the state's being run that, that, that you can't get their attention. Well, frankly, it's it's the job of candidates, and if I become a candidate, I'm going to spend every day trying to help California voters understand these are the basic issues that we need to get fixed. You know, this is not a partisan thing, Joe. You know, I get a lot of questions about, well, you know, you're you're well known to be somebody who's you know right of center, who's got views about fiscal conservatism. How's that going to play in California? I have not talked to a single voter, whether they're liberal or conservative or in the middle who looks at something like you've referred to the fraud in the unemployment insurance system, $30 billion at least of fraud. And by the way, bigger than Bernie Madoff, bigger than all sorts of different frauds that we've seen, probably the biggest fraud at the governmental level, at the state governmental level in the history of our country. Nobody looks at that and says, yeah, I'd like that to continue. You know, nobody looks at the the challenges with the choo-choo train that, that you've talked about where there's all these promises made about the spending, creating jobs, creating a train. We still have a train to nowhere. I've talked to no Californian who thinks, hey, that's a great idea. Let's continue that. So I think part of the challenge, Joe, you're right, is that people are really busy with their lives, and they should be. But part of the job of public officials is to raise the attention and the awareness on these issues and talk about them and say, how can we fix them, as opposed to continuing to cover them up and just perpetuating the Sacramento monopoly that exists right now. Amen to that. We're talking to Lan He Chen, who uh, Politico listed twice on their annual list of thinkers, doers, and visionaries, uh, the top 50 in American politics, uh, thinking about running for the controller gig in California, which is essentially, as he told us, the CFO of California. You know, you're also an educator. And as an educator, I'd love to have your perspective on the story we've been talking about the last couple of days. This is a high school in Northern California where a passerby, a student passed by a classroom in the hallway, glanced in, saw a Nazi flag, went to the administration, said, I'm disturbed by that. And they have suspended the teacher and launched a full investigation. And and now everybody's going to pieces and afraid to talk and the rest of it. What's happening in education these days? What the hell is that? Well, you know, oh, and I'm sorry, he was teaching World War Two, specifically right. a senior seminar on propaganda and symbols. Yeah, well, one of the things in general about our, our system of education is that one of the, I don't know, basic hallmarks of, of education in the classroom is the ability of educators to, um, to, to, to essentially teach based on 
the, the, the things that they believe are, are best for the students in their classrooms. And we have this principle of local control of education, which is also very important. And, and, and so one of the challenges we have is this concept of academic freedom, which was supposed to be core and central, particularly at the university level. I mean, that's the level I'm familiar with. It's where I, where I teach. And I'll just say that the measure of academic freedom that we see in the classroom at the university level uh, it, it just isn't the same as it used to be. You know, it used to be you could present lots of different alternate points of view and say, look, you know, you as a student get to choose. And now the idea that you would present certain points of view is verboten. You know, you, 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 you will be under attack unless you present a particular point of view, a particular way of thinking about the world. And that's not academic freedom. And by the way, that's not how we strengthen the minds of young people. But the way we strengthen the minds of young people in our educational system is to say, look, here's all sorts of ideas. You figure out which ideas you believe in, and you espouse and defend those ideas. So uh, I'm a little worried that the concept of academic freedom is going away, and that's something that's been degraded for, for many, many years now. Well, and what's truly frightening is the enforcement mechanism for that is a bunch of, a bunch of students who we have taught to have pathologies. We've given them pathologies, like the idea that if they are challenged or hear something they don't like, that's an offense. They've been aggrieved. There should be uh, uh, some sort of uh, repercussion for that, which is a bizarre idea. Yeah, I mean, again, this gets back to, you know, do we punish people for expressing different points of view? Uh, you know, do we, do we punish educators? Do we punish students who want to express different points of view? Now, of course, there are certain points of view that are arguably beyond the bounds of, uh, you know, civil and normal conversation. And, and we can have a conversation about how you deal with those things. But fundamentally, the concept of academic freedom means that in a marketplace of ideas, the bad ideas get defeated. The good ideas rise to the top. And that's the kind of system we want because it reflects what happens in American society. You know, we are a pluralistic place. People are allowed to express different points of view. And, you know, there are very specific requirements the Constitution sets out about freedom of speech. And we need to be serious about that. And, and that extends to the classroom. We want to have in the classroom freedom of thought, freedom of expression. And we allow people to debate uh, reasonable ideas. And I think that's something, unfortunately, you just see less and less of these days. Lonnie Chan of the Hoover Institution and Stanford University on the line. In the couple minutes we have left, let's do a little compare and contrast between the challenges, the divide, if you will, in the GOP, uh, the, the, the Trumpers and the no more Trumpers and the, uh, the battle going on uh, in the Democratic Party uh, between the, the woke crowd as personified by the squad and, and the mainstream Democrats. Who's got the bigger challenge or how do you see those two divides? Well, first of all, you're right, Joe, to talk about the divide in, in on both sides of the political spectrum. There's a tendency to focus on, oh, you know, gosh, look at the civil war, quote unquote, in the Republican Party. And and the point I make is, look, both sides have these divisions that are driving, uh, you know, the, the politics of both sides, unfortunately, toward toward what I think are, are more extreme positions on the on the left and certainly some of that on the right. Um, my own view on what's happening amongst conservatives in the Republican Party is. I think we ought to be focused on welcoming as many people as we can into the conservative movement, into the Republican Party. We should be creating a bigger tent, not a smaller one. And so what I would love to see is instead of talking about uh, how do we make the party better by subtraction or how do we make the movement better by subtraction, I think we should talk about how do we make it better by addition. 
and, and I don't see that on the left, by the way. I, I think there is a very strong desire amongst many on the left to cancel voices that are considered more reasonable or more moderate. And I'd hate to see the same thing happen uh, on the political right as well. Here, here. I think Hispanic America is going to be a force for conservatism within 20 years, personally. Any thoughts well, a, on that? And Asian Americans, too, by the oh, way. Absolutely. I, mean, I think I think I, I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, racial and ethnic minorities in this country, they want to be able to maximize their freedom, increase their opportunity and be in a society where, you know, they can raise their families peacefully and with the knowledge that we have the rule of law. And those are all basic principles, by the way, that I, I know. I mean, certainly many conservatives I know espouse. And and so I think making the case in that way, Joe, is part of the challenge. And it's it's something that I you know take very seriously. If you do decide to run for office, uh, let me know the maximum contribution. I'll give you triple that. Okay. Well, I- <laughs> Michael, edit that out when this airs. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I appreciate that, Joe, and we'll certainly keep posted on all this. Lonnie Chen is the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, Director of Domestic Policy Studies at Stanford University. Lonnie, great to talk to you. Have a great week. Thank you. Thanks. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. So Dale Mortensen is imagining critical race theory standing at the podium and, and, and introducing itself to the school board, students, parents, teachers, and anything close. Uh, it's So I'll just read part of it to you. It's it's brilliant. And again, trust me, the whole thing is worth it. Hi, my, my real name is Critical Race Theory. I presented myself to many well-known communities using words you think you know, like equity or inclusion. So if it puts you at ease, just call me equity until we get to know each other better. I'm here to institute an all-inclusive, anti-racist educational program. I'm sure that you all have a common understanding of the term racist. And if you have questions about this new term, I'll explain what that actually means once we have the program in place. Uh-huh. You're good. You're good people. And I know all of you want to be anti-racist. So let's begin. Now, I do understand that my name has the word theory in it, but don't pay too much attention to that as we will be teaching CRT is truth. Besides, theory and truth both start with a T, so later oh, we can just use them interchangeably and eventually make a permanent name change. I'm going to ask you to please not refer to me using the terms Marxist, Maoist, or Stalinist. CRT is very different from those ideologies. We won't be dividing your children or the citizens of your country by class. We will be using race instead. But enough about words and names. Let's get to the program. That's good stuff. Oh, it is. It is. Um... Our first order of business will be to install a very comprehensive equity program. We here at CRT like the word equity because it sounds so much like equality or the value in your home, and that feels good. But under equality, the law or equality of opportunity doesn't really work for us here at CRT. Those equalities have been worked on for 225 years through struggle, amendments to the Constitution, war, movements, civil rights laws, rules, regulations, trillions of dollars spent. And yet there are still individuals that succeed or fail more often than others in every single school or business in America. Then they make the the point that if you get um, uh, virtually identical students, from a limited number of homes of the same races, socioeconomics, etc., they don't have equal outcomes. But that's very uncomfortable to discuss, so we'd really prefer that we don't discuss that at all. 
But they say that uh, CRT has many goals, but here are a couple of CRT's favorites from the dozens of word salad goals selection. One, to ensure that the predictability of student outcomes do not correlate with any social or cultural factor. And two, to ensure that every student is embraced in their full identity in a community of belonging that empowers them to flourish both academically and socio-emotionally. But then they point out that your kid is no longer your kid. Your kid is your kid's race. And that's all they are. Maybe I'll share a little bit more of this with you in a, in a bit, but it's good. It's devastating. And Tahisi Coates on the CBS our Early Show um, talking about critical race theory. Yeah, so our critical race theory is a, is a, is a, is a, um, a framework uh, for understanding uh, American history and American life. Uh, and, and the basic premise of it starts from the idea that racism is endemic to, to this society. Now, you can agree with that or, or disagree with that. You know, there are all sorts of, you know, historical theories or theories that, you know, can be applied, you know, to the law, et cetera. But to ban it, I just really, really want to focus on that. You know, it's not what your opinion of it is. The idea that it should be banned from teaching at all or banned from discussion or banned from education or pushed out of the public square. I just, you know, I, I think that's that's a huge problem. I think whatever your opinion of those ideas are, like you should find that problematic. There are many notions and ideas in America that I totally and completely disagree with. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't ban them. There are a lot of people who I think are, 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 you know, are dead, dead wrong. You know, I wouldn't, you know, move for schools and for universities to ban a discussion of those ideas. I just think that's a that's a that's a totally, totally different level. Um, uh, never, never get Tim Sandifer started on Tahisi Coates as we have before, because he'll go on for an hour about how much he hates the guy and how dangerous he is for the country and his views of the world. Um, but uh, as to what he just said there, Joe. Well, I appreciated him expressing that point of view, but it is hilarious. It, it reminds me very much of certain fundamentalist Islamist countries uh, where they insisted on having uh, democracy. And they got rid of the dictator and they voted in Islamist uh, totalitarianism. <laughs> they used democracy to end democracy. And the thing about critical race theory, and I just love him using the term problematic because the more you learn about this, you realize that's one of the weapons they have. They just, they, they pick apart, they parse what you've said and they find an individual word, a phrase, they deliberately misinterpret it, claim that it proves you're a racism, uh, a racist rather. Uh, they, then they say it's problematic and the rest. It's just, it's absolute garbage. But, what reminds me of the the Islamist thing is that he's saying no, it's it's, it's open to market of ideas, right? Just free discussion of ideas, which everybody who's sane agrees with. But once you get the critical race theory into your schools, for instance, you dare not dissent. And you tried to speak up against it at your uh, re-education camp for your job there? How'd that go? Any of you teachers who hate this stuff, when you brought it up during the training session, whoa, this is racist. How'd that go for you? That's a good Mott and Bailey argument he's presenting there. So his, uh, which one is your castle? The Bailey? Um, the, the, mott the mott is the castle. The mott is and the, the castle. Bailey is the the like the courtyard. Okay, so areas. his his mott is uh, we want to teach different views in school. Okay, yeah, I can't disagree with that. And the view I want to teach is that we're a systemically racist country through and through, and white supremacy dominates every aspect of the country. Right. And then if you challenge on that, you go back to your mott. Well, I thought we were going to discuss everything. I thought we were going to have a free exchange of ideas. Yeah, you're teaching a sick, racist philosophy to kids. It's become part of a craze. And I swear, the educational establishment is more prone to falling for crazes than the average 13-year-old. It's unbelievable, and this one's particularly evil. But Dale wrote us this long piece, and, and it's it's so good, though. It's, it's critical race theory introducing itself. And it uh, mentions some of the goals and... 
And uh, critical race theory, speaking for itself, says, as you read this, parents, board members, and teachers may have a few questions that come to mind, such as, how will you ensure or enforce these goals? Isn't correlation similar to coincidence, or wouldn't it be better to examine causation, which requires empirical evidence? Are outcomes grades or something else? What are the social or cultural factors? Uh, how will you ensure or measure whether a student is being embraced in their full identity or is flourishing? Does academically mean grades, learning targets, standards? What does it mean? Well, I was actually hoping that you'd be lulled by the virtuousness and empathy emoting from our goals, but I'll try to answer these questions. Truthfully, many of these concepts are impossible to measure and so nebulous that you will need to open a Department of Equity and Inclusion to do the enforcement and interpreting for you. This new administrative arm will need to be fully staffed at the district, school, and possible subject level. Under their watchful eye, they will interpret whether all goals are being met in every school classroom and for every student student should any student feel not embraced in their full identity blah 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 they can file an anonymous complaint online and one of our highly trained crt specialists will spring into action which by the way is exactly what's happening on college campuses that have I mean, it was i think it was ohio state university had 50 some different deans and under deans and associate assistant deans of equity and inclusion and blah 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 and uh, anonymous complaints abound, and God help the professor who gets complained about. We've all heard those stories. I'm telling you, my friends, you have to fight this stuff. It is, it is far more dangerous than China in terms of an existential threat to this country. Wow, that's a statement. End of rant. Well, China's not going to wipe us off the face of the earth unless they decide to go full nuke, which would be insane. Armstrong and Getty.